You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to the 40th Psalm. The 40th Psalm. To the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for Yahweh. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in Yahweh. Blessed is the man who makes Yahweh his trust. Who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Yahweh my God, your wondrous deeds and thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them. Yet there are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is written, is within my heart. I told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I've not restrained my lips, as you know, O Yahweh. I've not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I've spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I've not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Yahweh, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me. I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Yahweh, to deliver me. O Yahweh, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is Yahweh. As for me, I'm poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, like David, we come before you sinners. And we plea only because we are certain of your steadfast love and faithfulness. Made obvious in the salvation of your king. 
And so as we look to Him, we look to the Word of Christ, minister Christ to us, conform us to His image, and give us open ears to delight in You, to offer up the sacrifice of praise. In the strong name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. Here we have a psalm opening in praise, morphing into petition. Or we could say that the, uh, the praised uh, prefaced the petition. But with that, you don't get any sense, do you, that the praise was manipulative, that the praise was buttering up God for the petition. Laud is a good warm-up for lament. Laud praise is a good warm-up for lament. Just as it was a lament that was heard that led to laud. So now it's laud that lays the way for lament. So you had a petition that was heard. And the result is that David praises. And now that praise is prefacing further petition. That's what's happening. Petition led to praise. Praise now prefaces petition. David opens up with a testimony of deliverance in verses 1 through 5. And this testimony becomes all the more dramatic whenever you don't simply think of it in terms of the whole psalm itself, which you must, but you think of the psalm, this psalm, in its place in relation to the psalms around it. Context is important even whenever you're reading the psalms. We're nearing the end of what is the first book of the Psalms. If you look at the end of, verse, uh, of chapter 41, following the last verse, you have uh, book 2. And so, uh, book 1 comes to an end, and comprised of Psalms 1 through 41. And the, it's striking how many of uh, themes throughout the first book of Psalms, but especially those that have been brought up recently are brought together, pulled together in Psalm 40. That there is a structure to the Psalter, or I think you at least have to admit that there is a structure to the end of book one of the Psalms, becomes plain in in this. You have two acrostic Psalms, Psalms 34 and 37, these two acrostic Psalms, and they bracket, they serve as brackets for what O. Palmer Robertson has dubbed the Psalms of the Innocent Sufferer. In all those Psalms, David is suffering, and it's, it's really emphasized, there's no mention of sin, it's really emphasized the wrongdoing of those who are attacking him in those. So they serve as brackets for the Psalms of the Innocent Sufferer, and then you back up a little bit more, and you realize that those brackets are bracketed by two Psalms that resemble that acrostic Psalm 34. Psalm 34 has 22 verses, one for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and the ones on each side of these acrostic psalms, Psalms 33 and 38, also have 22 verses. They're not acrostic, but it's striking. They also have 22 verses. They're what Robertson calls quasi-acrostic psalms. And the last of those, Psalm 38, introduces the psalms of the guilty sufferer. What sets those psalms apart, Psalms 38 through 41, what sets them apart from the previous psalms of the innocent sufferer is that in those, David mentions his guilt. 
In every one of those, he mentions his guilt, there's contrition, there's repentance. And so, looking back on these psalms of the guilty sufferer, indeed, picking up with the last of the psalms of the innocent sufferer, David in Psalm 37 has a psalm of testimony. It's a wisdom psalm. And he gives, here's, here's a theme that I want you to see in these ones that lead up to the 40th psalm, this theme of waiting. Psalm 37 David counsels, be still before Yahweh and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way, over the man who carries out evil devices. 37.7, 37.34. Wait for Yahweh and keep His way and He will exalt you to inherit the land. And so now picking up on the first of the Psalms of the Guilty Suffer, Psalm 38, verse 15. But for you, O Yahweh, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. Next one, Psalm 39, verse 7. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Now, we don't know the chronology of these psalms of the guilty sufferer. And it is highly unlikely that the 40th psalm follows in time these previous psalms as it does in arrangement. But nonetheless, it is as though, as you're reading along, it is as though the 40th psalm is the answer to the waiting of the, 37th, uh, the 38th and 39th psalm. And what it tells you, it opens telling you, is that waiting that David advised and counseled in Psalm 37. And that waiting that he exemplified in Psalm 38 and 39, that kind of waiting is worthwhile. I waited patiently for Yahweh. He inclined to me and heard my cry. And notice that you're not just told that David waited. You're told that he waited patiently. And that really fails to capture the Hebrew. It's quite striking. David says, basically, I waited, waited. Same word used twice. More accurately, it would probably be something like, waiting, I waited. Or, I waited while I waited. But if David's waiting is emphatic, so too is the Lord's deliverance. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction and out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Yahweh inclined Himself. He bent over hearing David's cry. Saints are all knowing, all seeing, all hearing. Omniscient God never misses anything. But what you're told here is not simply that He hears the cries of His children but that He listens to them. He inclines towards them. Our all-knowing God is not simply aware of our cries. He's arrested by them. His attention is, His, his never diverted attention is arrested in grace and mercy when His children cry out. And the result of David's prayers is that he is lifted up 
from the pit. His feet are set upon the rock. He's delivered. And the result of his deliverance, verse 3, is that a new song is put into his mouth. And the result of the deliverance and the new song as public acts is that many will see and fear and trust in Yahweh. So the result of, the del- of David's cry is deliverance. The result of the deliverance is David has a new song that he proclaims. And the result of the public deliverance and the public proclamation is that many will see and fear and trust Yahweh. You notice this transition that we've moved from David in particular to man in general. Many will see and fear and trust Yahweh and blessed is the man who puts his trust in Yahweh. The salvation of the king means the salvation of others. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom. The deliverance of the king is the deliverance of the kingdom. That's understood, but I think you're being told something further here. I don't think David has primarily in mind that his salvation will mean his subjects trusting Yahweh, though that's the case. I think as as this comes to light more fully in Christ, the idea is that the kingdom conquers Not only by the destruction of her enemies, but by the conversion of her enemies. Not simply their destruction, but their conversion. Many will see and fear and trust Yahweh as they behold the salvation of God's King. The kingdom expands not only by destruction of enemies, but by conversion of enemies. Jesus spoke of both of these conquests in the shadow of the cross saying, "Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself." And then John adds this comment. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. But the lifting up of the cross would have been of no effect had there not also been the lifting up from the grave. And because the Father has lifted Christ from the grave, the risen Christ draws all His sheep who hear His voice. The salvation of the King means the salvation of His sheep. Many will see its saints as we have this blessed honor. The deliverance of God's King has happened. The salvation of God's King has happened in His resurrection. And we have the same blessed privilege that as we proclaim the new song of redemption, many will see. God uses the gospel preached. It's the power of God unto salvation. And as it's proclaimed, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ is perceived by blind eyes. As you sing His praises, many will see and fear and trust. Sinner, if this is you, if today your eyes are being opened in some way to see Christ crucified for sinners, 
risen to rule, if you see that and you fear and you trust, blessed is the man who makes Yahweh his trust. You will be delivered. You will be saved. So can you see why after speaking of, of this deliverance, David will go on to sing of God's wondrous deeds and plans toward us. Verse 5, you have multiplied, O Yahweh my God, your wondrous deeds and thoughts toward us. Whenever God delivered David, Israel could say, how amazing. Your covenant wonders and deeds toward us in the deliverance of your king. True Israel of God, how much more can we sing? You have multiplied, O Yahweh our God, your wondrous deeds and thoughts toward us in the deliverance of your king. Oh, what a multiplication of everything anticipated here by David. There's found in Christ. Everything that all the covenant grace that's multiplied toward Israel in David's deliverance is multiplied times infinity towards fulfillment, fullness in Christ. So we can exclaim, none can compare with our God. And then, as a result, again, of this deliverance, David's going to praise. He not just has this new song in his heart. He vows to praise publicly. I will proclaim and tell of them. What's them? Wondrous deeds and thoughts towards us. Those thoughts. Wondrous deeds being His deliverance. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. This is what John MacArthur refers to as the pleasant frustration of the psalmist. To tell, and I cannot tell all. John, no doubt, was expressing the same sentiment whenever he closed out his gospel saying, Now, there were many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Samuel Rutherford knew the same pleasant frustration. Set 10,000 new-made worlds of angels and elect men. Then double them in number 10,000 times. Let their heart and tongues be 10,000 times more agile and large than the heart and tongue of the seraphim that stand with six wings before him. When they have said all for the glorifying and praising of the Lord Jesus, they will have, been, have but spoken little or nothing. His love will abide all possible creatures' praise. Oh, if I could wear this tongue to the stump in extolling His highness. And so it's no... It's no mystery why on this side of the cross our uninspired hymn writers would experience the same pleasant frustration 
could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill? And everyone a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. God has multiplied His redemption towards us far more than we could ever multiply our praise. We cannot tell all, but this does not choke our praise. This evokes it all the more. Now, following this vow to praise, we shift from David's mouth to his ears. And we make a shift from the sacrifice of praise to sacrifices for sin. In verses 6 through 8, we have these verses that, that I think you have to wonder, how are they connected to what David has said and what he will say? He said in verse 3 that a new song has been put into his heart by God's deliverance. Then in verse 5, he tells of God's wondrous deeds and thoughts towards his people in that deliverance and makes a vow to proclaim of that deliverance before the people of God to whom those deeds were a covenant mercy and grace. And then in verses 9 through 10, he picks up on that and says, I told them. I made this vow and I didn't hold anything back. I told them. And then verses 6 through 8 seem to be an interruption in that flow. Before we answer how they relate to that, let's ask this question. Are these verses a repudiation of sacrifices? When you read, in sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, burnt offering and sin offering you have not required, it may seem that way until you read in the larger context of the Old Testament, you read passages like Proverbs 21, 27 that speaks of the sacrifices of the wicked. You read Isaiah 1, 11 through 17. You read Jeremiah 7, 21 through 26 or Psalm 57 through 15. It becomes plain there that it's the insincerity of the sacrifices. It's the, the hypocrisy of the sacrifices. It's that those sacrifices are offered up not so much in repentance toward sin, but seeking permission for sin. It's that those sacrifices are offered up not with faith, but they're offered up flippantly. They're not a, a, there's no expression of reverence for God. There's a, there's a desire for sin. But there's a historical reference in David's life that I think really brings out what What's happening here? While Saul was king, whenever he was waiting for Samuel before engaging the Philistines, he grew nervous because the people started to leave. And so instead of waiting for Samuel, he offered up sacrifice himself. And once he's done so, Samuel does arrive, and he's not impressed by Saul's excuses, and tells him, you have done foolishly. You've not kept the command of Yahweh your God with which He commanded you. You've not kept the command, for then He would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. Yahweh has sought out a man after His own heart. And Yahweh has commanded him to be prince over His people. Because you have not kept what Yahweh commanded you. It's not too long later. 
that Saul, still acting as king, is instructed by Samuel to go and destroy the Amalekites. Make war against Amalek. And he does so, but he's told that he's to devote everything to destruction. And instead, he spares Agag their king, and he spares the best of their livestock. Although he says that was so that they might offer them up to Yahweh. Samuel, again, is not impressed. And his response includes these famous words. Has Yahweh as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Pause. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Resume back up. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of Yahweh, He also has rejected you from being king. And Samuel soon follows that saying, Yahweh has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it, given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. You see this distinction between the half-hearted, insincere offerings of Saul and the sweet psalmist of Israel, the man after God's own heart, and in contrast to these sacrifices that rightly understood, you understand from Leviticus 17, it's not something we offer up to God, it's something God has given His people to offer up. He tells them there, I've given you the blood on the altar to make atonement. But rather than Saul thinking he's offering up sacrifices, David speaks of what God has given him. An open ear you have given me. Or again, the, the uh, English really fails to capture the Hebrew. It says, yeah, you, sh you have a footnote, I believe, in the ESV. More strictly, it would say something like, you ears you have dug out for me. Some take this to be a reference to the bond slave who would have his ear bored through as a as a sign that he's devoted himself completely and wholly and for the entirety of his life to his master. I don't think that's the case. I think it simply means David has ears to hear by God's grace and goodness. Speaking of how this is fulfilled in Christ, Spurgeon commented, his ears were as if excavated down to his soul. They were not closed up like Isaac's wells, which the Philistines filled up, but clear passages down to the fountain of his soul. And so David is, is not only offering up praise, he's offering up obedience, this open ear to the word of Yahweh. He's offering up obedience, and he's, he's not offering up this praise as part of who he is. Saul just offers up this sacrifice. That's just part of Saul. David is offering up this part as an expression of the wholeness. 
Before David puts anything on the altar, he's already put himself there in whole. And the result of this ear excavation is this inclination of David's whole body, the the whole of who he is, to God in obedience. Then said I, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. How did it get there? It's part of this ear excavation that God gave him. David is speaking of the, in shadows, the reality of what the new covenant makes plain. In Yahweh removing a heart of stone and giving a heart of flesh and writing his law on the heart. Matthew Henry says, Uh, When the law of God is written in our hearts, our duty will be our delight. David is saying, not simply, that he offers up praise and obedience to God in distinction from these insincere, hypocritical sacrifices. He's saying, God gets all the credit. For this offering up of myself in obedience to him. He has dug out an open ear for me. John Newton put, put the result of, of this, this ear excavation. Results in this fountain of delight in the heart. In God's law. And Newton puts this thought to verse. Our pleasure and our duty. Though opposite before. Since we have Seen His beauty. Are joined to part no more. It is our highest pleasure. No less than duty's call. To love Him beyond measure. And serve Him with our all. They were opposite before. How did they get unified? We saw. Many will see. And fear. And trust Yahweh. So now, let's return to that question. How are these connected? What what David is saying here, how is it connected to the praise that he speaks of on both sides of it? This vow to praise God before the congregation. Hebrews 13.15 speaks of our, our offering up the sacrifice of praise. Let us not offer it up as the wicked. Offer up sacrifices for sin. Let our sacrifice of praise that we offer up be but an expression of the wholeness of ourselves that we offer up. And we are offering it up even as a sacrifice of praise saying, the the offering of myself up is due to your goodness and grace. I'm praising you and my praising you puts me in further debt to your grace. The reason I'm praising you is your grace that I've experienced in delivering me. But that the reason I'm praising you is because you've given this to me. The whole disposition, not only the deliverance without, but the disposition within are all part of your deliverance and goodness and grace. David does not mask rebellion with praise. For David, praise and 
piety were a single expression. We used to refer to this kind of wholehearted, warm devotion to God. We used to speak of that as piety. We've put a negative spin on that word, piety, pious, but that's what it means. Warm-hearted devotion to God. And for David, piety and praise were wed. If you didn't have one, you didn't have the other. Piety without praise is self-righteousness. If you're just pious and you don't praise God, an open ear you've given me. Piety without praise is self-righteousness. And praise without piety is a mask for unrighteousness. Praise without piety is a mask for unrighteousness. And what you're seeing here is that in response to God's deliverance, there should be piety and praise. Pious praise. Praising piety. David doesn't just offer up praise as a part of him. He offers up the whole of himself and praise as an expression of that offering. Now as you... As you now look at verses 6 through 8, don't you sense something transcendent? Don't you sense that though David is singing truly, he's not singing fully? That David is just doing a cover here? The original hasn't yet been released. David hasn't written this song. He's written this song, but he hasn't. It was given to him. And then along comes the one who can truly sing it. The hint that that's so, I think is clear in the words, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. This is just David. Where are such things written of David? We could go, I think the best answer would be Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. You have several commands there given to the king, but the most relevant and Related to this would be he's told to write his own copy of the law. You come into office and your first task is to write out Genesis through Deuteronomy, your own copy, so that you can read it every day and keep it. And and yet with Deuteronomy 17, there's not the idea that just you do this, but it speaks to something. This delight to do God's law being written in the heart. But Saul shows that's not always the case. What should be isn't always true. And with David's sons, we see, with David himself, we see failures in this. When Christ comes into the world, well, He's the one who all of Scripture testifies that His pleasure was pleasing His Father. That, that the law was his delight as it, as it was no other. Hebrews tells you whose song this fully is. And in answering that question, does, do these verses, that, that, that uh, second question, returning back to it, do these verses repudiate the sacrifices? Not immediately. And yet they do ultimately. As Jesus sings this song, the author of Hebrews takes up these verses 
And it's speaking of them about how the sacrifices for sin that were made could never put an end to sin. That's why they were continually being offered. But here comes one who sings these verses. And his offering up of himself for sin puts an end to all sacrifices. They didn't please God in a sense in which this one did. They were all anticipating and pointing towards this one. But in these sacrifices, Hebrews 10, 3-7, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it's written of Me in the scroll of the book. You're told that Christ said this psalm when He came into this world. With His incarnation, Christ says this. And did you catch the the substantial change that was involved there? Hebrews quotes from the Septuagint, which is the ancient Hebrew translation of the uh, Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And instead of ears you've dug out for me, You have a body you've prepared for me. Now, how did they make that step? Well, they understood that the open ear meant offering up the wholeness of who we are. Open ear meant a a body willing to serve Christ. A body you've prepared for me. It's substantial that the author of Hebrews picks the Septuagint. Understanding of an open ear to bring about the fullness of of what's being spoken of here. A body you've prepared for me. Jesus didn't come to offer up sacrifices for sin. He came to offer up Himself as the sacrifice for sin. Not any of those offerings, but this body. And he offers it up in both senses of, of the fullness of which he's, he's, he's showing everything that's here is, is incredible because he offers himself up unto God both by his life and his death. He offers himself up in obedience. He crawls up on the altar to present himself wholly in obedience to be our righteousness. And then he offers himself up to be consumed by the flame of God's wrath for all of our disobedience. He offers himself up for everything we failed to be, to be in our place. And he offers himself up to suffer for everything that we are. Only Jesus could really say, with profound humility, In substance, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. Back to David and us. Here's what you're seeing though. The proper response on our part to God's deliverance is not simply praise, but that praise stemming from wholehearted devotion. It's pious praise. And then learn this, that this this pious praise before David turns to his petition he speaks of his devotion 
His obedience to this vow in verses 9 through 10. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I've not restrained my lips as you know, O Yahweh. I've not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I've spoken your faithfulness and your salvation. I've not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Before he turns to his petition, David speaks of his fulfilling this vow. And it reminds me that before Jesus cried out in the garden, he offered up another prayer. And in that prayer, he said, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. Before, David, before Jesus cried out with his petition, he prefaced it in the same way, I've not withheld your praise from the great congregation. What was Jesus' whole life but an act of public praise of His Father in obedience with His lips and with His life? And because Christ so made it known, let us look at Him and let us imitate Him and let us, in, in so much of a lesser way, but a true way nonetheless, wholly offer ourselves up unto God and out of that wholeness, as an expression of that wholeness, praise Him. Not just before one another, but so that those outside may see and fear and trust. We will be frustrated by shortcomings. David didn't fulfill this perfectly. We'll be frustrated by shortcomings. Let us again and again vow not to stifle the new song that he's put in our hearts, but to proclaim his glories publicly. And it's out of such praise that David turns to petition. From past deliverance to present distress. And rather than the praise making you think that the petition is ingenuine, it's the genuine and sincere nature of the praise that lets you know that the petition is righteous and good. David has not prefaced this petition with praise in order to manipulate because his petition is sincere that you sense uh, the because his praise is sincere you sense the petition is saintly david says that he hasn't restrained praise and then he says in verse 11 he's certain that god will not restrain mercy and the reason is that yahweh's love is it's his covenant love is a steadfast love it is faithful your steadfast love and faithfulness will ever preserve me I cried out, and that steadfast love and faithfulness delivered me. And I'm crying out again in certainty that you will not restrain your mercy because your covenant love is steadfast, it's faithful. And David, even so, says his need is urgent. We see that in verse 12. The situation is dire. And so in verse 13, he cries out for God to make haste and deliver him. Children of God, know that, that waiting for God, trusting God, does not mean that you don't cry out to Him with 
fervency and urgency in your trials. It means that when you do so, you do so trusting Him, waiting patiently. And learn this from your king. As he was preparing to walk the hardest path of obedience that has ever been set before any, and treading the dark path to the cross, walking through the valley of the shadow of death as no man has ever had to, As he prepares to walk that road, he cries out, Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see, you can cry out as an expression of faith and trust. And David's deliverance means the destruction of his enemies. That becomes clear with all the curses pronounced in verse 16. Uh, excuse me, verses 14 through 15. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. You have these curses. And they're spoken in reference to David, but then you have this blessing. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is Yahweh. So curses are spoken in reference to David, but blessing in reference to God. If you hate David, you're cursed. If you love God, you're blessed. Now, how do we square these two things? You can make some progress whenever you back up to Psalm 35. And in Psalm 35, you have very similar curses. For instance, let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Psalm 35, 26. But now listen to the contrasting blessing that you have in Psalm 35. Let those who delight, 3527, let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is Yahweh who delights in the welfare of a servant. So in Psalm 35, David is the reference both for blessing and cursing. And those who delight in the righteousness of the king and are blessed, Shout for joy and exclaim, Great is Yahweh who delights in the welfare of a servant. That would be David. Psalm 35 is speaking of his deliverance again. And so, the welfare of his servant is synonymous with the salvation of verse 16. May those who love your salvation. What salvation is in view in Psalm 40? The deliverance of God's king. The welfare of God's servant. It's the same contrast. Blessing and cursing. You are blessed if you love God's... You are blessed if you love God's king. You are cursed if you hate God's king. And this should be fully absolved. Any any tension you feel between these two. When you look at Psalm 2 and you recognize that the king's throne is God's throne. The king is meant to bring God's rule. Your attitude towards the king is your attitude towards God. It's his king. If you rejoice at the deliverance and salvation, the resurrection of Christ from the grave by the Father, if you rejoice at that, you are blessed. You scoff, you ridicule, you blaspheme, you hate that idea, you are cursed. 
following these pleas for blessing and cursing. And you notice how David's, David's praise expanded out to the world. They'll see and fear and trust greater God's covenant deeds and plans toward us. As his, as his praise expanded out to the world, so his petition has expanded out to the world in blessing and cursing. But then he returns back to himself. And he contrasts his great need. I am poor and needy with the care of his God. But Yahweh takes thought for me. He's returned to where he began. I cried out, and Yahweh inclined toward me. I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. And with that, he makes his petition his final time. First, with the declaration, you are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. And C.S. Lewis's the horse and his boy, said boy, Shasta, having completed a hard and difficult and good task, is then only given another. And which we're told Shasta's heart fainted. And he was in turmoil at the unfairness, the cruelty of such a demand. And the narrator adds that he, Shasta, had not yet learned that if you do one good deed, your reward is usually to be set to do another and harder and better one. Here, David receives such a trial with greater dignity and poise and grace. And why is it that he did so? How could David receive this trial with grace? Well, the answer is because he'd already received the grace of trials. He had cried out and experienced deliverance such that with praise in his mouth, he can cry out for another deliverance. David's going through the trial that led to his praising prepared him to go into the next trial praising God as he pleased for deliverance. The deliverance was not preparation for a life of ease. The deliverance that he experienced was preparation to meet another trial with poise and grace. For what reason? For the glory of God. For it to really be demonstrated that he has an open ear. And that the whole body has been laid upon the altar in devotion to God. Lament produced laud and laud prepared the way for lament. Petition answered, resulted in praise, and then praise prefaced petition. But not only that, David praised God not only following his waiting, he's praising God now, don't you see, in the waiting. Praise and petition have become mingled together as he matures in Christ. He's experienced God's faithfulness and he's praising God and that prepares him for the next trial that comes. To not simply praise him following the petition being answered, but to praise him in the petition being offered up. 
Can you not hear the same mixture of praise and petition, laud and lament in Charles Wesley's Advent hymn? Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. And saints, he's come. All that we see anticipated in this psalm has come to its fullness in Christ, save for David's iniquities that troubled him. Because our Christ was not troubled for his own iniquities. He was troubled for our iniquities. And because that's so, precisely because everything that we see here, we see more of in Christ, save David's iniquities. Because that's so, we can praise while waiting. We can know this rhythm of lament and laud, praise and petition. We have seen salvation come in the life, death, and resurrection of our King. And it's for that reason that we can wait, wait. We can wait while we're waiting. We can wait patiently. Because we know the fullness of salvation will come with His return. We can mingle lament and laud, praise and petition, saying, Praise be to God, Christ has come, and crying out, Come, Lord Jesus. Saints, God's King has been delivered. Praise Him. God's King will come again. Cry out. To him. Don't just wait for his return. Wait, wait. Wait while you're waiting. Wait patiently with pious praise, offering up not just a sacrifice of the lips, but a sacrifice of the lips coming from an offering up of the wholeness of yourself on the altar. Not to gain any grace, but exclaiming in that very act, all of this is of grace. Praise be to you. An open ear you've dug out for me. And so may these lips extol you and this life be offered up to you. Let's pray. Holy Father, we need your grace. This is impossible. So take your word right upon our hearts, Father. Dig out ears right now. We know you've done it in regeneration for so many of us. We trust that's true. But we, we continually need a cleansing. Father, freshly give us open ears that the fountain that you've You've caused in the new heart with, its law, with your law written upon it. May gush forward into praise. And may flow through all of our limbs to offer ourselves up wholly to you. All as a response of, of gratitude for the deliverance that's come to us in the deliverance of your king from the grave. Saying, all of man's libel is not true. He is my king. Sins are atoned for. All is His. And because that's so, we can praise You even as we wait through our trials and sufferings 
and chastenings, knowing your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve us. In the strong name of Jesus, we cry out and we praise you, Father. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.